0: Well, today is the third and final sermon on the Lord's instructions to Moses for the tabernacle. We have already looked at many of the tabernacle's furnishings. We have considered its design as well as the important role that the priest served in the tabernacle. We did that in the previous two sermons. Now, it is my hope and prayer that many of us have seen not only how the tabernacle served God's purpose to dwell with his old covenant people, but how the tabernacle helps us as the new covenant people of God to better understand how it is that God dwells with us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament is not something that we set aside, but it reveals and gives depth. It puts skin on the bones or flesh on the bones of the gospel for us, where sometimes we come without understanding certain things. We look at the Old Testament, and then we can see God's plan of redemption unfolding better. So I hope that in these sermons on the tabernacle that has been going on. I love history, I love looking at details and studying, but I want you to see Christ in the tabernacle. Now, this morning's passage contains the Lord's final instructions to Moses for the tabernacle. Now, there's a lot in this passage, but with God's help, we will find within it valuable insight, practical, helpful insight for the Christian regarding the importance of prayer, the work of Jesus Christ, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We begin with the importance of prayer by looking at the altar of incense. it was given this name because on this altar, the priests burned incense. Altar of incense, it's where they burned incense. It's not creative, but it's very helpful. This is what it, its purpose was. God commanded that this altar be placed in the holy place section of the tabernacle. So hopefully you remember kind of the setup, either from the previous sermons, but the holy place was the first place the priests entered. Then it was divided, uh, the the tabernacle tent was divided in two sections, and there was a a curtain or a veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place beyond it. Well, this altar of incense was, was placed Uh, right on the other side of the most holy place, right next to the curtain, across from the ark. So the curtain divided or separated this altar of incense from the ark and the atonement cover. That's the placement of it. This means that the altar of incense, also called the golden altar because it was overlaid with gold, was closer to God's presence than any other furnishing within the tabernacle. There's the ark, the atonement cover, and then the next closest furnishing was this altar of incense. But what is the connection between the altar of incense and prayer? Well, scripture teaches us that the incense offered on this altar symbolized the prayers of God's people. We see this in Psalm 141, where David compares his prayers to the incense offered on the altar. Psalm 141, one and two. O Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. The book of Revelation gives us two other passages that make this connection between the incense and prayer. Now one of them is Revelation 5, where the Apostle John is given this glorious vision from God of a heavenly scene which takes place around the throne of God. John sees a lamb standing as though it had been slain. This lamb we know is the crucified, resurrected, and triumphant Jesus Christ. And the lamb takes a sealed scroll from the right hand of God the Father, and, and then we read this in verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now, what does the altar of incense teach us about prayer? Well, there's much. Now, I had contemplated before we got into the tabernacle section of doing one of two things. And honestly, the week before, I had to, I had to email Jen who puts together our our worship order and and she needs to know what scriptures we're going through. I had waited to the last minute, maybe past the last minute, because I was thinking about dividing this tabernacle, some of you good choice on this, but into 12 sermons, but we've boiled it down to three. So there's much in all of this, but I want to focus in on this. What does this altar of incense teach us about prayer? God desires that his people pray. God desires the prayers of his people. Now you and I have things in our homes that we do not need and that serve no important purpose. Many of us have boxes and shelves and drawers full of things that we don't need and we never use. Think about that in your head right now. What's going on in your basement? What's going on in your junk drawer? What's going on in your closet? Full of stuff that honestly if it was taken out, if some robber robbed us right now as we sit in church and took all this stuff, we might say, oh that's kind of scary that somebody came in, but we would be fine. Many of that stuff is going to be thrown out soon or sold at a rummage or given to goodwill. But the Lord is not like us. In his house, every single item, every single thing serves an important purpose and everything in his house is assigned a place for a significant reason. The Lord does not have a junk drawer. He doesn't collect extra things that the Lord commanded Moses to construct the golden altar of incense, and that he commanded the priest to burn incense on it, which symbolized the prayers of his people, reveals the Lord's great, not just desire for his people's prayers, but the Lord's great desire for his people to pray. The seriousness and depth of this desire can be seen in the location of the altar of incense. God commanded that it be put directly across from the atonement cover or mercy seat on the other side of the curtain, meaning that it was the closest item in the tabernacle to where God's presence uniquely dwelt in the tabernacle. Think about that. Now, proximity sometimes doesn't matter. Right? You, you can get close to something in some ways and it's, it's not a big deal, but in this case, it does matter. It says that his people's prayers are so important to God that he wants their prayers directly placed before him, right at his throne, right there. God's desire for his people to pray to him can also be seen in Exodus 37 and 8. The Lord commanded the priests to burn incense every morning and at twilight. This meant that one of the tasks that God gave to the priests was to begin and end each day by symbolically offering the prayers of God's people to God. This was a way of communicating to his people that God wants his people to pray in the morning, throughout the day, and in the evening. It was something like the Old Testament equivalent of 1 Thessalonians 5.17, which tells us to pray without ceasing. That was being modeled in the tabernacle. God's people would be praying all the time to their God. The altar of incense teaches us that the God who is eternally self-sufficient, who has always existed in perfect fellowship as Trinity, not lacking anything, He needs nothing from us, still desires our prayers. Just sit on that thought. Let your brain somehow sit on that thought. He needs nothing, he will be fine without us, and yet he desires our prayers. That should do something in the believer's heart. Christian, God desires that you pray to him. It is part of our responsibility as Christ's new covenant priests to offer up prayers for ourselves and for others to God. It's part of our task as redeemed Christians. As members of God's royal priesthood, God commands us to pray. We are that that new covenant priest. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ instructed His disciples to pray and He even gave us an example to follow in the Lord's Prayer. It's rich, it's deep. We are told in Romans 8.26 that the Holy Spirit who dwells in us helps us to pray. And Paul urges the church in 1 Timothy 2 1 to make supplications and prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings for all people. But this is not some difficult assignment. I I don't want you to think that I'm trying to, to make this seem like some burden, some command. It's not a difficult assignment that God has given to us, it's not to be viewed as a laborious drudgery. Prayer is not some chore that we have to do that our Heavenly Father is saying, take out the garbage and do some prayer while you're at it on your way out. It's not what's going on with prayer. Brothers and sisters, prayer is something that we get to do. Not have to do, we get to do. As God's adopted children, we are to be like any child who loves their father We want to talk to our Father. And the Bible teaches us, even here in the tabernacle, that our Heavenly Father desires to hear His children's prayers. He loves to hear our prayers. Church, we are to tell our Heavenly Father what is on our hearts. We are to cast our cares on the Lord because He cares for and loves us more than anything else in all of His creation. And we don't always feel that. Reality and when we're going through struggling and trials in our life. But every time we remember the gospel, we know that He proved it. Doesn't matter what we feel about it, He proved that He loves us more than anything else in all of creation because Jesus did not come back for nothing, He came back for you. So you know He loves you, you know that He desires to hear your prayers because Jesus came back for you to rescue us from sin and to bring us to God. We are to tell the Lord of our thankfulness for in him we live and move and have our being. He is the giver of not only our lives and all blessings but in Christ, brother, sister, in Christ he has given you and I eternal life. We are to bring before him our burdens asking for his help in our times of need and for increased faith and love for him so that whatever comes in this life will not cause us to wander from Christ. Lord, keep me. Increase my faith. Help me to love you and other people more so that when hard days come and they will come, the word tells us there are many promises of God. Some of them we love. Some of them we don't always love. One of them, you will be persecuted if you love Jesus. So Lord, help me. This is to be one of our prayers. Help me when I I go through persecution and hardship to continue to hold on to the cross. We're to come to him in prayers of praise, proclaiming his great name, because we love to talk about him who saved us and loves us. He is the most glorious and awesome one in our hearts and our minds. And so we want to tell him that. We want to tell other people. We want to tell our Christian brothers and sisters about him in our prayers. The author of Hebrews, using tabernacle language, describes this truth. Look at what we find in Hebrews 10, 19-22. Because of Jesus Christ, the way has been opened to the most holy place. All who come to God through faith in Christ can with confidence pray to God the Father, knowing that he not only desires our prayers, but he hears our prayers. Jesus has opened the way. He has made the connection. He has established the line of communication. He has put up the cell phone tower. He has set up the wireless modem. Use whatever analogy you'd like. The point is this. Because of God's grace to us in Christ, we can communicate with God in prayer. We who were once spiritually mute and dead sinners have been made alive and given the ability to talk to God. Church, it is our great privilege to pray. And so I ask this morning are you praying? Simple, basic part of the Christian life. Because we need to take full advantage of this great blessing and this tool in the spiritual battle that is the Christian life. And we need to pray. Now two Sundays ago we saw how the animal sacrifices that were made in the tabernacle point us ultimately to the cross. Because it was at the cross where God made the perfect sacrifice for our sins. When the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, died as our substitutionary atoning sacrifice. So we saw that two weeks ago. Then last Sunday, we considered some of the ways that the Old Covenant priesthood foreshadowed the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Now in these final instructions concerning the the tabernacle, we find two more ways that the tabernacle helps us to better understand the work of Jesus Christ. There are so many themes trajectories people that we find in the old testament that ultimately end up in christ and you know what they do sometimes people are like well i need some application from this you know what the application is when you see these themes and they all come together in jesus christ worship this is the application worship that is the purpose that god saved you and so the application when we make these connections and we we see how he is the high priest how he is the true tabernacle that we meet with god through and in we worship our hearts say, he's better than I understood before. So here's the application, that's the application, and here's what should fuel that worship. Two more ways that we can better understand the work of Jesus Christ. The first one can be found in the census tax. God required Israelites who were 20 years old or older to pay. Now I think it's safe to say, in general, that that you don't like to pay taxes. Like you would prefer to keep more of your money and give less to the government. So we tend to, I mean, if you think about it, there's some history in our nation of opposing taxes, at least without representation, right? Tea party stuff going on. We, we don't like taxes generally. However, your views are on taxes, whatever they might be, this tax is a good tax because it takes us to the gospel. God described this money that the Israelites were to pay as a ransom and as atonement money, stating that those who paid this tax would avoid being killed by a plague. The people were sinful, and God was going to send a plague because of their sin, and the only way that they could be saved from God's righteous wrath against their sin was through the payment of a ransom. Now because people often determine what they believe about God and about life based on their own feelings and experiences rather than on God's word, believing that sinners need a ransom payment to be saved from God's wrath is not a very popular, it's even an offensive thought today. It's becoming even more and more offensive. Even professing, sadly professing believers are avoiding this essential clear doctrine that is taught in scripture, the need for atonement. However, in the census tax, God was teaching Israel, and through them us, important gospel truths. Israel was confronted with the reality of the wrath of God against their sin. What do we need to be saved from? So many things. And one of them we find as we read scripture, the wrath of God. We need God to save us from his own righteous wrath. Israel was confronted with the reality of the wrath of God against their sin. It didn't matter what the culture around them believed or what their feelings or experiences caused them to think. God said that unless a ransom was paid, their sin would lead to their death. And yet at the same time, this tax was teaching God's people of God's holiness and their sinfulness. It was also revealing to them God's mercy. God was providing a way for sinful people to be saved from what they deserved. And that is what God's mercy is. God not giving us what we deserve. So God has already been merciful to you. You should be in hell right now. But he's not giving you what you deserve. You're sitting in this room hearing his word being preached. God has shown his mercy to you already. God showed his mercy through the tabernacle tax, a payment that ransomed or purchased people from the consequence of their sin. Today, God continues to offer a way for sinners to be ransomed from the consequence of sin and saved from his wrath through a payment. But it is not through a tax, thankfully, that tax was simply a placeholder. It was a type, a, a trajectory that, that ends ultimately in Christ. It helped to establish the category in God's people's minds that a ransom needs to be paid. It put that there. Okay, a ransom needs to be paid. Right now we're paying this ransom tax, but later on, Peter speaks of a different ransom. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. This was a good tax. The census tax helps us to better understand the work of Jesus Christ in his ransoming sinners from sin and ultimately from the wrath of God. Now the second way that we gain insight on the work of Jesus Christ from this passage is by considering the bronze basin and its purpose in the tabernacle. The bronze basin was the final piece of the tabernacle structure. Exodus 38.8, remember, uh, we won't be going through that that second portion of the instructions because they're basically a repeat. There's a few details. Well, Exodus 38.8 gives us one of those details that we don't find in this passage and that this basin was made from mirrors. Not glass mirrors, but, but mirrors that were made of polished bronze. This basin was a shiny washing bowl that was on a stand, filled with water so that the priests could wash their hands and their feet in it. Now, unlike those who use the bathroom and decide that they don't need to have clean hands, that is a pet peeve of mine, all right? Not just because I'm a dad who wants his kids not to get sick, but it takes five seconds, all right? Or maybe a minute, actually, all right, to do a good job. So unlike those people who don't wash their hands after they go use the restroom, the Lord's priest could not skip washing up in the Bronze Basin. They were required to wash, and if the priests didn't wash, we were told twice that they would die. Think about that. They were going to die if they didn't wash their hands and their feet. Friends, parents, and fellow bathroom users, we have just found the answer to our burden, our problem of people not washing their hands. What we need to do is, is put up signs inside of every bathroom door that say, Sinner, wash your hands lest you die. Here's the application from the Bronze Basin, all right? We can avoid so many diseases and sicknesses, right? Sinner, wash your hands lest you die. Now what was the real purpose of this life-saving water washing? And what can it teach us about the work of Jesus Christ? The dirt on the priest's hands and feet was symbolic of their sin and the basin showed both the priest and the rest of God's people that they needed to be washed and cleansed of their sin. As previously mentioned, God is pure and holy. There is not a stain in him And so the priests were required to wash, symbolizing their need to be cleansed of their sin. If they didn't, they would die. And not from some fungal bacteria, but because of the holiness of God. They walked into his presence without obeying his command, and the holiness of God would wipe them out, and it would be totally just for that to happen. That's how holy God is. Apart from acknowledging their sinfulness by washing the bronze basin, the priests could not come into the presence of God. The water in the Bronze Basin symbolized God washing his people's sins away, foreshadowing the work of Christ. In the New Covenant, we find that God still uses water to symbolize his people being cleansed of their sins. We find this, of course, most clearly put forth in water baptism. It is a visible sign and seal that God has given to Christ's church, reminding us that we who have repented of our sins and trusted in Jesus Christ to save us, have been by God's sovereign grace. No work of our own been cleansed of our sins. He has washed them away in Christ. Just like the water in the bronze basin did not truly cleanse the priests, the water when we are baptized does not truly wash away our sins. Rather, it gives us a picture of the cleansing, awesome work of Jesus Christ for sinners. It is a picture that we can come back to over and over again that proclaims to us that Jesus has cleansed us of our unrighteousness and clothed us with his righteousness. That is what the picture of baptism gives us, at least one of them. A gospel proclamation. This sinner has been saved and washed free from the stain of their sin. In 1 Corinthians 6, the apostle Paul describes the Corinthian church, to the Corinthian church what God has done in Christ for the believer. He writes, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, God cleanses sinners from their filth. He washes our sins away. And in Christ, God continues to wash them. It's not just a one-time deal. The thing is, after we are born again, after we are justified, after God brings us into the kingdom, what happens as long as he doesn't take us as soon as he saves us? We get dirty again. We go back to the, the sinful things. We are, we are torn the flesh is bringing our, our, our minds and our hearts back to, to things that are leading us to destruction and we need to be cleansed. And the work of Christ is that he doesn't just wash us once. He continues and he continues to wash his people from their sins. Have you been washed by this water? Have you trusted in Christ to cleanse you of your sin? Friend, if you have not been washed of your sins by Christ, then today by repenting of your sin, turning from it and turning to Christ in faith, you too can be washed of your sins. This is not some little altar call so you can feel better. I'm not going to lead you in a prayer or tell you to close your eyes and raise your hands. You need to be washed of your sins. You need it. Otherwise, you will bear God's wrath for eternity, and it is righteous for him to do that. You've rebelled against the holy God. Cosmic rebellion, not just a little light thing. This is not some light word you have said to your father or your mother on earth. You've offended and you've rebelled against the holy God. You must be washed. And Christ invites all sinners to be washed by his perfect sacrifice. In both the census tax and the bronze basin, God reveals his wrath against sin, his mercy towards sinners, and his love for his people. And all these things are fully revealed to us in the work of Jesus Christ. I love it. You see these themes, washing, cleansing, even taxes. God can redeem anything and use it for his glory to explain the gospel. Taxes. People are always talking, what are we talking about? The weather, the packers, and taxes. Taxes. We can look at the weather and say, see the glory of God? The one who is over all these things, the thunder and the rain. He brings it. He's over it. Packers, removing idols. You know, when when they lose, it it can be a good thing because we're able to say, you know what? Joy is not ultimately found in the Packers winning on Sunday or Monday or Thursday, whatever. It's found in Christ. And now you can talk about taxes and tell them, you know what, there is a good tax. The census tax. Open up to Exodus 30 and talk about how Jesus is the ransom for his people. Well, this brings us to our last section in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Before we look at some of what Exodus 31, 1-11 teaches us about the Holy Spirit, I want to point out that both of the areas we have already focused on, prayer and the work of Jesus Christ, are uniquely connected to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. As mentioned before, Romans 8, 26 and 27 teaches us that it is the Holy Spirit who helps the believer to pray. If you're a Christian, why are you praying? Because the Holy Spirit has led you to pray. Not only that, he is interceding for us in prayer and is working in us as we pray. When it comes to the work of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is the one who works in us through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ to bring us to repentance and faith. Ultimately, when we first experience our salvation, we think, at least the majority of us, think it was me. I made that decision. I turned the corner. I opened the door. And then later on, as we read the scriptures, we find now it was the Holy Spirit working through God's word who opened my eyes. I walked into that room, not a Christian, didn't plan on being a Christian, didn't didn't go in there saying, you know what, today's the day that I become a Christian. Decided, planned this thing out. No. The gospel goes forth and the Holy Spirit changes somebody. Gives them eyes and ears and heart to believe. It is the Spirit who brings us to life. He brings dead sinners to life and causes us to understand and rejoice in the work of Christ. Many of you, I know your testimonies, include a portion of this anger and hatred towards God. And yet what happened? You didn't decide, I'm going to change my heart. God changed your heart. Well, in the final instructions in the tabernacle, we find another aspect of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit empowers God's people to do God's work. We are told that God filled Bezalel with the Spirit of God and that the Spirit equipped him to fill the task to fulfill the, to fulfill the task that he was called by God to do. We're also told that Aholiab and the other craftsmen were equipped to do their work by the Spirit. Now, there are lots of passages in Scripture that reveal the work in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But this is, I think, a unique one because what we can learn from this passage is that the Spirit fills us to do tasks that are not always considered extraordinary. This passage tells us that the Spirit empowered craftsmen to do construction. This should heighten our awareness of vocation, of career, of work. God is empowering the businessman, the garbage man or woman, the mail carrier the secretary, the construction worker, to do their work that he has put them in to his glory. So many Christians have the wildest and craziest ideas about the Spirit's work, and this passage helps to correct wrong thinking. Yes, sometimes the Spirit blesses us with new gifts and abilities, but other times, and I would say often, most often, he simply increases and strengthens gifts and abilities that God has already given to us. And we see that in how the Holy Spirit filled the tabernacle craftsmen. We find the Spirit working in a similar way in Acts 6 in the New Testament church. As the church grew, the needs increased, and disciples decided that they needed to appoint some, some men to serve, to fulfill these needs. What did they look for? Men who were full of the Spirit and wisdom, full of faith and the Holy Spirit, Acts 6, 3 and 5. The important job that they were given as spirit-filled, wise, faithful men was not to preach or to teach or to write a book. The important task that the Holy Spirit filled them and empowered them to do was to serve widows. Church, this reminds us that the Holy Spirit fills us not only so that we can do some of those things that we might consider the extraordinary or spiritual things, but so that we can glorify God by doing things like serving widows, showing hospitality, visit the sick, care for orphans, make the coffee on Sunday, teach children's or adult Sunday school, care for babies in the nursery, give generously, scrub the toilets and clean the bathrooms, bring a meal to someone in the church who is sick, or serve an elderly saint by cleaning their home. The Holy Spirit resides in every believer and the Lord's final instructions to Moses remind us that the Holy Spirit empowers us as believers to do not just the big things but also the little things that are not so little to God. What we learn from the craftsmen is that whatever work God calls his people to do, he empowers them by his Spirit to serve his people for his glory. This elevates everything that we do. Wherever you work, If you are a a spirit-filled, and every Christian has the Holy Spirit, if you are a spirit-filled, redeemed Christian, then your work matters to God and can be used for his glory. The work of God was and is accomplished not in our own strength, but by the Spirit of God working in and through his people. Church, what a wonderful gift God has given us in the tabernacle. And as we've made our way through these tabernacle sections, I pray and hope that, that the the book of Exodus has come more alive to you, Now you've seen Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, all of it, even those parts that seem confusing and difficult, because you have given us your spirit, and your spirit helps us to understand and apply your word to our lives. Father, we rejoice in the gospel. It is good and wonderful because you are so good and so wonderful. Father, we pray that your grace would go forth and that faith would be increased in our hearts, that those things that we are holding on to that are keeping us from enjoying Christ, you would lessen and strip from our grips and that you would put in their place joy and affection, fruits of the Spirit, Father, so that our joy would be increased. We pray this and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.